Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that the fight that we're facing is not about right versus left. And it's not about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about democracy versus authoritarianism. And never, ever let anybody tell you different. The next 18 months will be the most crucial months in American political history since 1860. Think about that, gang. Now is the time to get involved. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up to be part of the pro-democracy army that will lead us to victory next year. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Trig Bielsen, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigvi, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be here. I'm also joined by Jeff Timmer, also a Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project, former Executive Director of the Michigan Republican Party, and host of A Republic If You Can Keep It, available wherever fine podcasts are found. Jeff, good to have you back. Thanks, Reed. It's good to be here. So, guys, as we're recording this, and this isn't going to air for a few days, but as we're recording this, we're just a couple of days away from yet another school shooting in this country. And there's a couple things I want to unpack. But, you know, as I was leaving my house this morning to drive my daughter to the bus to go to school, there's a park across the street and the flags were at half staff. And then there's a building near where I drop her off at the bus and the flags were at half staff. And I got to tell you, Jeff, I'm pretty darn sick of seeing flags at half staff for dead kids and dead teachers. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking I've been on this podcast with you maybe half a dozen times over a couple of years. And every time it seems we have this discussion, it's in the wake of a shooting. It just has become so commonplace. And it's something that we've just become numb to as a society. You know, we said this last time after the Michigan State shooting in February, you know, it becomes this thing that we do. We tear our shirts and lament for a couple of days and then we go on and don't talk about it again until the next one. And I know there's a huge number and probably the majority of Americans who are fed up and outraged by this, but it's time to stop blaming the minority from holding this up and demand action. I think we need to look at ourselves and not settle for inaction any longer or accept some culpability as the majority in this country that we're not doing enough to force the change that we know is smart and sensible and will make a difference. I mean, Trigby, in the aftermath of Nashville, there was a member of Congress asked on the Capitol steps, what's going to happen? He said, we're not going to fix it. We're not going to fix it. And, you know, I want to put that in the context with a data point, and I don't have the source for it, but we'll find it. We'll put it in the show notes that the leading cause of death among children now is firearms, which I think is a pretty shocking indictment of our society in the United States in 2023. 
this is not a hundred years ago where there was child labor and you know and they're the triangle shirtwaist company and there's a fire. This is not car accidents or lawn darts, not to make too light of it. I mean, that's pretty amazing and not in a good way, in any possible way. Again, I say this every time I'm on the podcast. It's a question of seriousness. And what we see in the aftermath of the shootings is a lot of people creating answers that really aren't serious. Let's arm teachers. Let's turn our schools into bigger prisons than they already are. I have, you know, daughters, one who's in grade school, one who's in middle school. The idea that they have to do active shooter drills, it's just ridiculous. And I say that as somebody who owns guns, who likes guns, who hunts. But at some point, you have to ask yourself with certain types of guns, ARs, for example, and this glorification of gun culture, it's so antithetical to what my dad taught me as how you should treat weapons. And, you know, like I said to a friend of mine who works for the NRA after Uvalde, you know, they were pushing this idea, let's arm teachers. And I said, you know, come on, like you and I are both pretty good with guns and we want to stood a chance against this guy. You're going to put a handgun up against a guy who's, you know, got a, an AR and multiple clips. It just isn't serious. It really isn't. The Washington Post did an interactive thing that they posted. This is now yesterday as we're talking. And they had gotten permission from the families to use the autopsy reports of, I think, like a seven-year-old and a 15-year-old. And what a 223 AR-15 round does to a human body, and especially to a child's body. And it just, it turns you into hamburger. And the one kid, the 15-year-old who they were analyzing, you know, Jeff at Parkland, was shot 13 times, 13 times. And the way that they describe the rounds goes from being shot in the foot as the kid's clearly running away to being shot three times in the head as clearly the gunman stood over him. And I'm with Trigby. I got one in grade school. I got one in middle school. And yeah, I mean, my 12-year-old on the way to the bus probably a couple months ago goes, what are you going to do about guns? And I think, Trigby, you're right, which is, you know, the AR-15, you know, look, when you got Adam Kinzinger, former member of Congress, member of the Air Force, saying, I used to love guns. I still own guns. I'm in the military, but I've evolved on this, which is these things shouldn't be in the hands of people. But also what the common sense, at least beginnings of addressing this problem is not confiscation. Far from it. The word doesn't even come up. It's can we make it harder for the people who shouldn't have them to get them in the first place? And even that seems to be a bridge too far. And that, to me, as someone who considers himself a reasonable man, seems right down the middle of the reasonable man test. Yeah, I'm going to use Michigan as an example here. There was a survey done for the Detroit News and Detroit Chamber of Commerce two weeks ago that showed some of these legislative measures that are in motion here under the Democrat majorities in Lansing, red flag laws, safe storage laws, expanded background check laws. These are issues that are favored by 90% of voters in Michigan. 90%. I mean, that's a slam dunk. I mean, it includes a solid majority of Republican voters in Michigan approve these things. But then last week, the Michigan GOP equates what is going on in Lansing to Nazi death camps and has doubled and tripled down. And they're using this to try to raise money now 
comparing Gretchen Whitmer and the Democrat majorities trying to enact sane red flag laws that could have prevented what happened in Nashville, because apparently some of the early reports are there were lots of things that would have triggered these red flag laws uh, with the shooter's background. And so the Michigan Republican Party is on the less than 10% side, and they're digging in. It shows how extreme the partisan divide is on this when even a majority of Republican voters who are for a lot of kooky, crazy, fairly extreme things as a whole, they're with Gretchen Whitmer and the Democrats in Michigan. And I know that 90% number might be 80% in one state and 95 in another, but this is a universally accepted idea. It's as close to public consensus, Jeff, as we're ever going to get. Because 20% of people hate everything all the time, right? You're always going to get 20% of people who disagree with whatever you ask. Yeah, I mean, 20% of the people will oppose oxygen if you tell them they have to have it. Right. Now, Trivia, let's talk about the politics of this a little bit, because as I noted, this member of Congress, you know, says we're not going to fix it. We don't even see thoughts and prayers anymore. The Republicans don't even come up with thoughts and prayers. But, you know, let's explore the idea of the Republican Party, at least, uh, you know, its leaders and its judicial branch have gone as far as they could go so far on something like pro-life, pro-choice. So the unborn child is safe, but the born child, once they get to elementary school, all bets are off. And I think about this in the context of like humanity, which is there's a lot of inhumanity running around here. And I think about, maybe I've said this to you guys before, is like in this country, if one man in a sailboat off the coast of the Florida Keys goes missing, they send every asset, state, local, federal, Coast Guard, Navy, whatever they can do to find that person. And again, I know that there are plenty of exceptions to this, but just go with me here. But that's the sort of implicit idea in a democracy is we provide you with a temporary amount of authority and power. In return, we are protected, right? That's the first role of a government. And you know that every individual's life matters. But to me, and this is not a new phenomenon, but I do feel like it is accelerating, is that amongst the Republican Party now, or at least its leaders and its loudest activists, it's life matters when we say it matters, and if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And that arbitrary nature, to me, is fundamentally anti-democratic. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that makes America great, one of the things that makes it exceptional is how much we value life. But for some reason, when it comes to school kids, getting gunned down or people at a concert like those people in Las Vegas, the same people who like to wear it all over how much they care about life, the unborn life or the life of the aging, don't seem to have any respect for the lives of those kids. And the reality is they're being fed a whole line of shit, quite frankly, by people who aren't even really leaders. They're people who try and make a bunch of money off the issue. One only needs to look at what the NRA really was. And I say that as someone who, when I turned 16, my dad bought me a lifetime membership in the NRA. At some point, it just became a racket for a bunch of people to make a bunch of money around false grievance. <laughs> Listen, some of my best moments in life were with my dad going duck hunting or going and shooting. But here's the thing, is that ARs and this glorification of gun culture is ridiculous. The reality is, is that those guns 
at some point are being used far too often to kill kids at school. And, you know, the day after Evaldi, I had a conversation with my eighth grader who was in tears, worried about her sister and going to school. And I will say when I dropped her off and she got out, I was pretty emotional thinking about other fourth graders who'd been killed. And for what? Here's the thing. There is nothing unreasonable. If someone turns 18 and goes out and buys a gun, shotgun or whatever, okay. But if somebody goes out and buys an AR and then over the course of the next few months goes and buys 6,000 rounds and body armor, it's incumbent on the government to go and talk to them. Like, it's not serious that somebody from the government shouldn't show up and just to say to them, hey, what's going on here? Right? That's not unreasonable. And those people that are saying all this other crap, they're doing it out of self-interest, whether it's 30 pieces of silver or political power or whatever it is. You know, Jeff, Trigby brought up Las Vegas, and I was just looking at it. That guy shot 400 people. 400! Not 40, not four, 400! I mean, the idea to me, again, I just, I, it, it, guys, maybe, I don't know if I'm at the end of my rope. I don't have the intellectual capacity for it. I'm just at a loss. And here's the thing, Trigby, to your point, there are kids right? Like I got to drop my kid off at the bus. I got to drop her off at school. And then you see, you know, this video of like this woman rolling out this sort of tank that you'd put kids in if there was an active shooter, as if that's the solution, right? Okay. We're going to build an armored box to put our kids in because that's the answer to the question. Yeah. I mean, it's three kids is a tragedy. 400 people is a statistic. And we've become numb to the kind of the amalgamated numbers. I mean, it's not just three kids in Nashville. That's kind of the narrative. Three kids, oh, and also three adults. You know, they all had families. They all had lives. They shouldn't have died either. But it's become this impossible to grasp statistic. You mentioned at the top of the show here, the number one killer of children in the United States is gun deaths, is firearms. It's insane. No other nation comes close in, they want to talk about mental illness. The mental illness is this mass delusion that there's nothing that we can do about it when the rest of the world seems to have figured it out. Well, and, and here's the thing about it at the end of the day, most of those deaths are caused by the exact same weapon. It's not like they're using a pump action 12 gauge to go into schools and doing this. It's the same gun. And at some point, it has to stop. And honestly, that Bobert woman just drives me nuts, right? Because she has all these pictures of herself with her kids all armed up. As did the member of Congress who represents Nashville. Right. And it's like, I just wonder what their parents were like, that they were teaching them that about guns. I mean, clearly they weren't going to hunter safety in Western Wisconsin. Like, it's just asinine. And the other thing is, though, about 400 people might be a statistic, Jeff, but every single one of those people is the most important person in the world to someone who's left in this world dealing with it. And in the case of those three kids, they were the most important person in the world for at least two people, their parents. But, you know, the left doesn't do itself any favors on this either, Reed, because most of them don't understand, you know, when they get talking about guns and whatever, they don't want to have a reasonable conversation about it either. 
you know, a lot of them, and this is where the cultural differences matter, right? Like they're not differentiating between somebody's 12 gauge that they used to go out and hunt ducks or even a nine millimeter that they're keeping in their house that they like to go and do some sports shooting with and have for security that they keep in a locked box and ARs with, you know, hollow point bullets. And so you don't get a reasonable conversation about it. I think, you know, there are things that could be done, but I think at the end of the day, some of this starts, quite frankly, and this is what's so irresponsible about people like Bobert, responsible gun owners making sure that their kids, and most of them do, 99.9999999% of them, that they're responsible and that they're not promoting this weaponized culture. But I mean, this is, I think, again, part of what, I would call the authoritarian movement that Trump leads, which is they fetishize violence and they fetishize weapons and they fetishize being some sort of weird special forces, Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, special forces guys, you know, in all this stuff. I think they probably thought of themselves that way on January 6th, right, as they were forming up their parallel lines to go up the steps and everything. I mean, it's not an accident that Lauren Boebert or Nancy Mace or any of these people, they wear tight shirts, tight jeans, high heels or boots, and a nine millimeter strapped to their thigh, right? Like that's not an accident. They do that on purpose. They are going for a given reaction and they get it because this particular movement loves it. They love it. Because it's seen as power. That's what they're fetishizing ultimately is power. I have power over others. But you see these guys go into like, you know, it's somebody's always taking a picture. You see a guy go into like a Subway sandwich shop and he's got like two guns on his hips and he's got like an AR-15 strapped to his back and like a knife sticking out of his boot. And you're like, one guy who knew how to box would take that guy down in like half a second. Right. Right. And if this guy ever bent over, he'd never be able to get back up because he's got, you know, like a wheelbarrow full of gut in front of him, too. Right. (laughs) So, Jeff, let's extend the conversation a little bit. So in the wake of the Nashville shooting, it comes out that the shooter, as far as we know, identified as trans. And this is, of course, the exact kind of thing that Fox News, the Trump campaign, everybody wants, because now it's not about dead children or AR-15s. It's about trans people, and I don't know how many of them there are, but they're not that many, running amok in the country as if they're all running through the countryside, you know, with an AR-15 in both hands, firing from the hip, shooting people as they corrupt our family and our values. Yeah, well, it plays into the whole fetish culture that we were just talking about, the amosexuals who seem to be sexualizing guns and violence. They've also created a foil, whether it's same-sex couples grooming children. You know, we have to keep any mention of same-sex away from kids because, you know, God knows what effect it's going to have on them. Now the trans movement, the anti-drag queen, they've got to have a bogeyman, and this does play right into their script. I mean, we've, we've seen this already, the stoking of violence and hate against trans, against other LGBTQ community uh, individuals. Well, but also against African-Americans, Jews, women. Right. You know, I was thinking is we've been talking about this, you know, our colleague Stuart Stevens, when he says that Trump didn't create this, he exposed it. And there's been this permission culture created where the darkest, most base impulse, the id of the political right has manifested itself in dark 
dangerous ways, and it's just become normalized and accepted. And you, I mean, we've seen it all over right-wing propaganda TV. You know, Tucker Carlson last night was talking about the trans terrorists. Marjorie Taylor Greene was on Twitter talking about the trans terrorists, and somehow she's been blocked from Twitter again. I was going to say, she went so far off the deep end that even Elon Musk felt like he had to suspend her. <laughs> right. And, you know, which just plays into her hand, too, because then she's the victim. She's on Steve Bannon and every other, you know, whack job show talking about the victim she is. And it's not anywhere near a majority of Americans, but if we're talking 10 million, 20 million, 30 million radicalized people that look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and are nodding their heads. And these 20 and 30 million people own the majority of ARs in the country. This is when we're at a tipping point that we haven't seen in this country since the Civil War. The, the difference between now and the 1960s with the civil rights protests is striking because the level of radicalization, the prevalence, and the breadth of it all around the country. I mean, these people are dispersed all around the country. They're not just in red states. You know, California has 40% of its population, which is bigger than almost every other state's population, who vote Republican. And a wide swath of those people are armed up to their teeth, and they're radicalized to the point of violence. And that's where we need to be very worried as a country. Well, and Trigby, I mean, as we're recording this, it was just this past weekend that Trump was in Waco, Texas, site of the Branch Davidian disaster of 1993. Again, a fundamentalist cult, heavily armed, anti-government. And it's hard to say, you know, that this speech was more unhinged than other speeches. It was just the worst unhinged speech of the ones he's given so far. But again, it was rooting out the deep state, not necessarily not encouraging violence, but violence as a legitimate means to an end and invoking, you know, clear sops to QAnon. And to Jeff's point, and, you know, you and I have talked about this previously, is I feel like that a lot of these people are relatively newly radicalized or they were always on the sort of outskirts or the edges of society and the political system. But Trump built an umbrella or a house for them all to live in together. And so now, whether or not it's Trump saying it out loud or Marjorie Taylor Greene saying it out loud or the Fox News people. But then the rest of the Republican Party either has to play footsie with it or sort of do the see no evil, hear no evil deal. Your question about whether these people have been recently radicalized or not, as you know, is something that the Lincoln Democracy Institute, which is the C4 of the Lincoln Project, is working to try and understand, and I'm, I'm doing some work with them. And Jeff, you kind of alluded to some of the stuff. We haven't released the first report, the chapter one of our research, but chapter one of our research is on extremism and radicalization. And radicalization is different than being intolerant of others and being politically extremist. You know, I've talked a lot on this show about political extremism being about distress and cognitively simplistic answers and whatnot. Radicalization is about need network and narrative. And the Republican Party has built around this need narrative. And this is establishment Republicans too, that America is under threat from. And that might be Al-Qaeda, that might be radical liberals, that might be Russians, right? Within the Republican Party, there has been this vein of under threat. What's different, what Donald Trump 
did is he took that narrative and really it started, I think it goes back to when Obama won and Fox making a pivot into, you know, Obama is a threat to America. And it really built off of what happened with 9-11 and that threat from Al-Qaeda is that the radical left is this existential threat to America and to your values. What Donald Trump came along and did is provided network and narrative. And if you think about it, I say this often, what you saw on 1-6 was the culmination of that network and narrative. Come to Washington to be a part of other patriots, something bigger than yourself. And then what was, we're going to walk down to the Capitol and trial by combat and all those pieces. It was narrative. This is the action. And we now have some quantitative data with the LDI thing that we're going to be putting out to the world that actually demonstrates it. The reality is, is that what Donald Trump has done has created an environment where, you know, it's maybe eight to 11 percent of the electorate of the total electorate. But that's about 37, 40 percent of Republican primary voters are full on radicalized in terms of how they are seeing the world. And they would be meeting the same test, which is what we did for radicalization that you were seeing from young Muslim men when we had the problems that led to 9-11. It's a real serious problem. And and honestly, what I saw in Waco, as you know, you guys know, I started speaking out when I saw 1-6 because I was like, all right, this is exactly what I saw back in the day when I was working on on other radicalization. What I saw on in Waco, starting with, and in particular, the choir singing the national anthem of supposed dissidents who are being held captive? What the flying fuck? This is something I wanted to talk about. There was something new about this rally that hasn't been discussed enough since it happened last weekend. You know, Donald Trump is not smart and he's not disciplined and he's not strategic, but there are people around him who are. And this rally had a deliberate religious structure to it. It was structured almost like a Catholic mass, even down to the point where they stopped and had the offering. And it really took on this dark, religious, messianic structure. It's not by accident. There are some smart people around Trump who are doing this, and I think we're going to see them do it in much more overt ways as we go through the next 18 months, because the marriage of political radicalization with theological radicalization is nearing completion. And once those two are deliberately married together with the spark of this politics and theater, that's where the country could well explode before the next election. And I would say this, too, is that to your point, Jeff, with all of that stuff, with that Venn diagram basically becoming a circle, so much of it. Now, there's the Trump piece, but also it is you can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. Sure as hell, not the government. And those institutions are illegitimate because my guy is really president. We know he's really president. Some of them say it's Joe Biden in the White House, you know, or Joe Biden's in front of a green screen, right? These are the same people that believe we faked the moon landings and the earth is still flat. And they think we live in an occupied country. Well, Joe Biden's the acting president. You know, even somebody asked a question of Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was actually a mainstream. She might've been CNN or somebody said, do you believe that Joe Biden was elected president? And she said, well, of course, Joe Biden's president. But notice that she specifically left out that he's elected. The first time McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, now speaker, went to the White House, he didn't say that Joe Biden was free and fairly elected. He said 
Well, he's here at the White House, right? They always conveniently leave out the legitimizing parts that most Americans know are true. But again, this is, I think, Trigby, the issue to Jeff's point, which is it's not unusual in human history for a minority of people to control a majority of people. And the minority of people are usually heavily armed. So a lot of this, too, is to sow fear and chaos and to get people to not know what they're supposed to do next, right? Should I just stay at home? Is it too dangerous to go outside? Because we as Americans, most Americans anyway, are very lucky that we can basically curate our own lives at this point. And what do Trump and these people do? They inject a level of chaos into each of our lives on purpose that makes us decide that maybe we should withdraw from public life rather than go further into it. Well, I mean, you've heard me say this before, Reed. The reality is the strategy of all autocratic actors, whether it's Vladimir Putin, Alexander Lukashenko, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Chavez, any of them. And it's the thing that really jumped out at me when I started working, you know, with people in those countries for McCain is their strategy is always inevitability and invincibility through fear. So the more fear there is in society, the better off it is for them. They want distress and they want people to be afraid. Why is Vladimir Putin constantly trying to make the war in Ukraine about NATO attacking Russia? He wants them to be afraid. It's playing on old stereotypes. Most people don't even believe that. I mean, you think Dmitry Paskev's 22-year-old daughter, who somehow was able to buy a $20 million flat in London with cash, really is afraid of the West? Not. She didn't even want to be in Moscow. Now she's stuck there because they took it from her, and good for them. But um, that's what they try and do. The thing is, there are always going to be people who will appease, and they typically appease out of fear. And it actually, as you were talking, Reed, it makes me want to ask you a question because you did all kinds of California politics. I mean, has Kevin McCarthy always been such a weak, impotent, empty suit of a guy? Yes, but I mean, in the context of when, let's say, he, when he was minority leader in the California Assembly, they were always outmatched. And it was just whether or not Democrats had two-thirds necessary to basically raise taxes without a ballot measure or something, right? And the speaker, who I knew, would say, you know, Kevin, we're going to do this. And Kevin would say, I know you're going to do it anyway. Just give me this for my guys and everything will be okay. So back then he was an old line pole, which is like, I know my role in the world. I know I'm screwed here, right? I know I'm in a, in a position where this conference is going to be diminishing cycle in and cycle out, right? But what that also led to was the fact that like he wasn't a zealot. I mean, if you want to look at the precursor of today's National Republican Party, spend a little time with the California Republican Party of the, two th the 90s and 2000s, right? It's, it's, it's almost a darn direct line. But he came because he was always able to raise money, right? He got enough stuff for the business community, the California Chamber, the real estate guys in LA and, and Orange County, right? So there was always money to be had. Then he goes to Congress. He's got Bill Thomas's old district, and Bill Thomas was a lion of the U.S. House, right, in his day. And a real guy, like a real, like I think he was Ways and Means chairman, maybe. And this was a guy who really knew his stuff, right? This was back when there was a real budget process and everything else. But then he got to D.C. And again, he rose through the ranks quickly, not because he has any particular talent politically or legislatively, but because he could raise a ton of money. So he gets there and before you know it, he's whipped. But he's a terrible whip. Nobody's afraid of Kevin McCarthy. 
then he's minority leader. Why? Because he can raise the most money. That's the only thing that's ever kept him in. The problem he has now was that he decided that ambition and to hold a gavel was more important than anything else because the wackos don't care whether or not he can raise all the money. You know why? Because they don't need his money, right? Most of the conference now is so gerrymandered that they're not going to lose anyway. And if they needed money, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right, they're going to raise it hand over fist eight bucks at a time. So it came to a point where, you know, and I've talked about this and, and the listeners I know send me emails. You're probably so sick of it. Republican politicians now all are on this path repeatedly. And more and more and more, they come to forks in the road. And when the fork in the road comes back towards decency and normalcy or further into MAGA, they always go further into MAGA, either loudly or quietly. But they all go that way. And McCarthy decided this is the way I'm going to go because eventually someday, Trigby, I want my portrait in the speaker's lobby. And if I have to sell my soul to Mephistopheles to get it, I'll do it. And that's what he's done. And so he's always been willing to make a deal, right? Now, you could make an argument in politics. That's a good thing. What we didn't realize when he was in California was how empty a vessel he was and what kind of deals he would be willing to make. Right. To me, the thing that rings so hollow with Kevin McCarthy is this. He loves to cite Ronald Reagan. And I get that, right? Because he comes from California and there's an element within the party where that still shrinking every day. Yeah, shrinking every day, but it holds cachet. But the irony of that is like he clearly didn't get the whole time for choosing. And I think one of the things for former Republicans like all of us who are listening to this podcast to keep in mind is as this primary unfolds, there is a time for choosing that is going to be occurring. And the choices for Republicans are either Donald Trump and the ultra mega party or voting Democrat and trying to defeat those people so that you can rebuild in the future. And using the time for choosing analogy with the ones who aren't full on radicalized, because you're not going to get anywhere with people who are, is an important dynamic in creating some of that cognitive dissonance. And I will tell you, one of the things at the Waco rally, did you guys see Ted Nugent? First of all, I'm surprised Ted Nugent is still alive and he should stick to doing the Wango Tango instead of like speaking at political rallies. But the shit that he was pulling about Zelensky in Ukraine, like, you know, he should go do a concert in Moscow or something because it was straight out of Russian talking points. But the point is, though, is that in these kind of movements, the Ted Nugents of the world have a voice because in a normal, healthy political movement, Ted Nugent wouldn't be allowed in the parking lot. Yeah, because it, it's like I said before, it's all about the proximity to the leader. That is the illiberal vertical. And anybody who thinks that the Republican Party isn't still in a liberal vertical controlled by Donald Trump is living in la la land. So, Jeff, as we start to wrap up here, I want you to tell me why I should have some grace towards this last group of people I, I want to talk about, which is. The people who were not last to vote for Kevin McCarthy, who were the right wing wackos, but the people who were first to vote for Kevin McCarthy because they thought he was the best option because Kevin's quote unquote normal. These are people who consider themselves problem solvers. They consider themselves Main Street Republicans. There's probably like 70 of them. You know, as I was telling the class I was teaching this morning via Zoom, they're survivors. But to me, in that context, survivor is a pejorative, not a compliment. And 
I guess my question is, if we've seen the things that Trump has said and the things that Trump has said he wants to do or he's willing to do, the things that McCarthy had to give up to the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses, like why call them moderate if that doesn't mean anything other than they just keep quiet and hope the storm passes them by? Well, you, I think, turn to the wrong guy if you're looking for a reason to give them grace, uh, because I am decidedly Old Testament hellfire and vengeance when it comes to people like this. Well, because they embody the Vichy French mindset. They have deluded themselves that they can collaborate with the devil in order to maintain their facade of power so that their territory, they get to rule over it. It's not invaded by the ultramagas. And they can look themselves in the mirror at night and said, ah, we've done what we had to to hold off the devil. And all they've done, all they've done is empower and embolden the forces of darkness in this case, the Don Bacons of the world, the 18 Republicans who live in these districts that Biden won, the no labels problem solvers. They are as much or more to blame for the rise of the Freedom Caucus and the tail that's now wagging the dog and threatening the foundations of American democracy as anybody, including Donald Trump. Donald Trump could never have happened without the willing enableness, the dangerous naivete of these people. They have led us to the point of destruction. But Trigvi, let me take their position for a moment. They'll say, but aren't you better off having people like us who resemble some former sort of sanity than not having it at all and having worse people than us around. I mean, these guys are no profiles in courage. I'm reading a book right now about the war in the Pacific during World War II. And in this tome of a book that I'm going through, there's a story of a guy flying a Maverick airplane for the, the U.S. Navy, comes off the carrier. And at one point, you know, we only had one aircraft carrier left in the Pacific. And he takes off and he looks down in the water and he sees a Japanese torpedo coming at the only aircraft carrier, I think it was the Enterprise, that we have left. And what does he do without asking questions? He takes his plane and steers it straight into the path of the torpedo, crashes it into the water and takes out the torpedo. I mean, guy one flying across the whole nine yards, but it was a heroic act for the common good of America. I mean, the guy's great American for having done that. Don Bacon and all the rest of these guys are an insult to all those people. All they give a shit about is being in Congress. They don't want to solve problems. They're all thinking about what's the next step. And the truth of the matter is it's never enough for those people in the Trump world. And so, you know, the way that you earn their respect, quite honestly, is standing up to them. If they're attacking you, you're doing things right. Yeah. I mean, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan in 2017 are going to be looked at as having played the roles of Paul Hindenburg and Franz van Poppen in Germany. I mean, they thought they could embrace and marginalize the extreme and control it. And instead, it ran them over, consumed them, consumed Germany, consumed the world. And that's what we're in danger of happening here. And we don't recognize it when it's happening right next to us. Right. Because here's the thing. To answer my own question, is it better to have Mr. Moderate or Mr. MAGA? The truth is you're both going to vote the same way. So at the end of the day, what goddamn difference does it make? And what did Mitch McConnell get for trying to manage it? He got January 6th and Trump running for president again. Like 
It was such a colossal miscalculation on their part. And his advisors and all the people around would say, oh, he was playing the long game. He was getting carried by his security detail running from the mob because they wanted to kill Mitch McConnell. Donald Trump wanted him dead. And what did they try and do? Well, okay, now this time they're going to try and stand up and run candidates. I was talking to somebody recently who has good knowledge of what the Republicans in the Senate are going to try and do on the NRSC side. And they're like, well, this time we're we're not going to let, you know, the Trump candidates like Hirsch Walker get through the primaries. And all I can think is by trying to manage it and delay, 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 it's too late. You think in Montana that if with Donald Trump being the presumptive nominee, that they're ultimately going to get the reasonable Republican candidate for the Senate through? No, they missed the boat. They had the chance to stand up to him and they didn't do it. And that's true with Paul, too. You know, well, he's on the board of Fox News. What's Paul getting for all his accommodations? Paul Ryan, that is. Yeah, Paul Ryan. Yeah, he's getting a big check, but like Donald Trump eventually may go to Rupert Murdoch and say, if he is the nominee, either Paul Ryan's off your board or I'm going to destroy your network. And he's demonstrated, you've seen, they know he can destroy their network. Look, I mean, to that point, as we wrap up here, all Trump has to do is start saying, I know Tucker Carlson doesn't like me. I saw the texts. I know what he said about me. He wanted me gone. Why does anybody even watch that guy? Now, let's say it costs Carlson 25% of his audience. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of eyeballs going someplace else looking for the truth. And that might be, here's the other thing with Tucker and with most of these guys. It's 25% of his audience, but it's probably 50% of what his paycheck is. And what those texts clearly show is all Tucker Carlson gives a shit about, which is sort of like those who were at the NRA, is the money that he's making off of selling the grievances to people that they think are a bunch of rubes. And at the end of the day, one of the things that pissed me off more than anything with Donald Trump is my buddies back home who I like to go and drink beer with in 16 who are back in Trump and who are spending 50 bucks for a field sign that they didn't really have that was ultimately going to profit an LLC that probably was owned by Jared Kushner is that, you know, they were well-intentioned and they got taken for a ride. It's infuriating that this whole conservative movement, which some of the grievances in the 1970s were real and in the 80s. Listen, some grievances now are real. Yes, true. But what it's become is most of them are complete and utter nonsense. Well, look, I mean, this I started saying this years ago and people got mad at me. The Republican Party and the America First MAGA movement is about money, self-aggrandizement and power which makes them not a political party. It makes them a gang because that's what gangs do. All right. Well, on that happy note, before I let you go, Jeff, where can our listeners find you online and where can they find your podcast? Find me online on Twitter at Jeff Timmer. You can find my podcast, A Republic If You Can Keep It. I do that with the former chair of the Michigan Democratic Party, wherever you subscribe to find podcasts. Now, tune in, guys. It's a great show. I was lucky enough to be on it, I think, last year and a wonderful conversation with two guys who really have found common cause and for Christ's sakes in a state we certainly need it. Trigvi, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Trigvi Olson, T-R-Y-G-V-E-O-L-S-O-N. And you can find me every Wednesday morning at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, all across the great state of Wisconsin and on YouTube on civicmedia.us, the Todd Albaugh Show. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, as long as it's legal, at Reed Galen. 
and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Trigvi, Jeff, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com